Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Eccentric, the makers of the K-Box and the new K-Pulley. Guys, flywheel training's really grown in popularity of late, and although it's something that's been around for a while, the simple reason that it's grown in popularity is because it works. We've been lucky to have a K-Box in our weight room for the past three years, and we've seen some really great things when it comes to improving the athlete's ability to change direction, and then looking at our return to play protocols with different lower body injuries with the student athletes. The love-hate relationship that everyone has with the K-Box is now just going to grow more with the addition of the K-Pulley. The ability to do standing presses, pulls, rip-throughs, and knee drive exercises is just going to be another arsenal to our training and another addition to the love-hate relationship that our student-athletes have with the awesome tools that come from Eccentric. Go ahead and hop over to Eccentric.com today to check out what they have. Guys, I can't recommend it enough, and I guarantee you won't be disappointed not just with the products, but with the awesome customer service that Eccentric provides. Hey, everybody. If you enjoy the podcast and the content that it provides, make sure you hop over and check out the all-new Strength Coach Network. The Strength Coach Network is a combination of the CVA SPS community and the Rugby Strength Coach community, bringing you what is sure to be the Internet's leading resource for continuing education for strength and conditioning professionals. Combining these two resources has allowed us to bring some of the best content from some of the best minds in the world together for your one-stop shop to better improve the continuing education for not just yourself, but your entire staff. Bringing together all of the lectures from the Rugby Strength Coach community, along with the lectures exclusively done for the Central Virginia Sport Performance community, and all the lectures performed at the Central Virginia Sport Performance Seminar, make this an absolute must for performance coaches around the world. The world-class lectures at the Strength Coach Network are not all that you'll see as well. The discussion in the forums and the support and the career guidance from some of the top practitioners in the world, from people all over the world, makes this an absolute must and a great place for you to network, learn, and grow as a performance professional. So hop on over to strengthcoachnetwork.com and use the code CVASPS, that's C-V-A-S-P-S, to get your 48-hour trial for only a dollar. We're sure you're going to find great value in the Strength Coach Network and are really excited to have you involved. So hop on over to strengthcoachnetwork.com and use the code CVASPS to check it out today. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today, guys, I have the absolute pleasure to sit down and discuss all things movement training with Lee Taft. Guys, Lee is going to dive right in and talk about where this whole idea came from, how he started to evaluate movement and build his methodology, and how it has evolved you know, throughout the years. We get into discussing modeling and how having a basic model for specific movements can be your cornerstone into how you evaluate and alter movements for multiple sports. We talk about the role of strength training and the role of tendons in movements and we even get into talking about how there are so many commonalities between the great coaches uh, you know, from track and field to strength and conditioning and how they view these different things. This is really an awesome talk, guys. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let's get right to it. Lee, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us this afternoon. Hey, it's an honor, Jay. I've been, like I said earlier, before we got on, us C Staters got to stay together, right? Yeah, man. Once a dragon, <laughs> always a dragon. That's right. <laughs> so, for the third of a person listening right now who who may not know the Lee Taft story, how did 
How did all this get there? How did Lee Taft become the Lee Taft? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny as you'll you'll appreciate this story probably more than most being a being a Cortland guy is uh, back when I played, I played for Bill Williams and, um, uh, you know, he used to make us watch film. And and I, so when I started to watch film, I just got enamored with speed and movement. So I used to watch how people move, move their feet, defenders move their feet. And then I started to watch how I moved my feet, because, as you know, when you move, you know, you're not thinking about moving your feet. You're just thinking about making a play. And I noticed these patterns and it, it was it actually went against everything we've always been told is like, don't fault step and don't cross your feet and don't do this. But I'm noticing everybody did it. So even when I was in college, I started to watch film of old like Gail Sayers and and Sammy Ball and some of the older athletes that didn't have guys like you and I. They didn't have a strength coach or a personal, you know, performance coach. So I started to notice the movement. And then as I as I graduated and I got into I was a phys ed teacher, but I also was kind of the de facto strength coach. And then I, I went into my business pretty quick. I just started to study more of uh, functional biomechanics and physics and how it relates to movement. And then so all these movement patterns, I started to tag them together. Well, that led one thing to another. I started to get asked to do little clinics and you know, I opened up a speed academy back in the early nineties in New York and, um, and coaches started, uh, you know, a lot of them questioned me at first. They didn't believe the strategy, but I kept saying, well, watch your athletes move. So over time, I just started to do a lot of clinics and lectures. And then, you know, as that happens, you end up spreading and, you know, just like yourself, you know, you were, I know you spent time overseas and, and doing stuff and that's kind of what happened. And so that's how it ended up to where it is today. I love it. And I, I love the, the breakdown and how we're, you're moving forward in all of these things. And what I love the most is that it started inquisitively with you looking at video and questioning the norm. Yeah. You've done a ton of work in basketball. Yeah. What are some of those things that you see being taught in basketball that you kind of look at and you go, eh, like, maybe not? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the obvious one for basketball would be the pivot. So we always were taught, and I did it from a young kid through high school, through college, is, you know, you, you, the zigzag drill, which is a great drill. The drill itself is great. You, you know, you start in a corner, you zigzag to the elbow, plant your foot, open your hip, go to the, you know, and we zigzag back and forth. And what they called was you do an open up step or you plant your foot and you pivot. The problem is, is when I watched it, and then I watched myself moving. That wasn't really what happened. What happened was the minute I knew I had to react and change directions, we did what I ended up naming. I named a bunch of these things because I just needed to put a name to them. We called it a hip turn because the hips turned. And, and then over time, what I started to realize is the reason we do that is it kicks back into sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight and all this. It creates a greater attack moment or an escape moment. So if you're dribbling by me, well, now I got to attack you. I got to go get you. Or if it was a situation where you're chasing me and I want to escape, well, the natural reaction is to flip my hips create quick contact into the ground that elicits the stretch shortening cycle. We got stiffness. Now we move really quick. So the pivot isn't really 
it, you know, if you're an offensive player and you have the ball in your hands, you got to pivot because that's a rule. Otherwise, it's a travel. But other than that, we move by all these things that are categorized repositioning steps. The pivot is one of them. And then uh, probably the other big one in basketball is we were always taught not to cross our feet. We were always told to shuffle for everything. Well, now they're starting to realize I don't have enough speed for these explosive players who, you know, start driving hard by me. So what happens is we turn our hips, I externally rotate, I drive down and back just like I'm a sprinter accelerating out of the blocks, and then I bring my back leg through. Well, that whole time, my head and shoulders are trying to stay squared with my opponent. And so they call it a crossover. I call it a lateral run step because I technically don't cross over the front foot. I clear it to allow me to project in the direction I want to go. And uh, so those are the two main ones. There's other things, but those are the two big ones. Yeah, and those are probably things that are almost like day one technique corrections that you're looking at with the, the athletes that you work with on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah, definitely. When, when I do my assessment, the, the, the shuffle, the crossover uh, pattern, or the lateral run and the hip turn and, you know, the literally like the what I call a plyo step, which is which t- commonly called a, 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 a um, false step. Uh, those are things that all I do is I don't have to teach them. All I have to do is drive them into the pattern I want. And those things occur naturally. And then I fill in the spaces in between. So if they have bad shoulder, bad arm action, you know, they're, they're rising up and down too much. I'll fix that stuff. But the reaction is innate. That's innate to the, to that escape or attack uh, reaction or reflex. Now, how much do you think that strength work plays a key in that development as well? Looking at that, I mean, obviously reaction is a whole nother topic, but looking at that reactivity, if we may. Yeah, I'll give you a perfect example. I'm helping coach my fourth grade son's basketball team. So we're at practice and they're doing drills and they're moving and cutting. They do all the same repositioning steps. They're, you know, that's it's re, like you said, it's reactive. But you'll notice when they try to change direction, it's like they get a little bit stuck. They'll change direction, but they're not as as explosive. But that's their inability to apply force quickly and have a have a strong muscle which allows the tendon to do its job quicker. And, you know, they just don't have the strength yet. So if we can make our athletes stronger, now that stretch shortening cycle and all those things, which will naturally occur, but it occurs more efficiently just because we're a stronger human now. And so, yeah, strength is, it's funny. I got known kind of as a speed guy and all this and that, but I spent, I had a couple training sessions before we did this and we did strength the large majority of the workout you know, but that makes my speed better. So yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think that the big point to take away from that is one that still is being kind of glossed over is the fact that the tendon is so important and that the strength actually allows the tendon to do its job. Yeah. Yeah. You've been saying that for a while. Yes. Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, you know, and I think uh, that we we throw around this phrase and I use it because I don't, you know, there's other phrases, I guess, or pretension, but we talk about stiffness. 
or stability. Well, to me, I just if I, I think if I say stiffness, like if I'm lecturing, people get that. They kind of know what I mean. You know, you're stiff. So when I touch the ground, like to me, jump roping is a form of stiffness because you don't see somebody like they don't bend way down, go way back. It's like pop, 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 pop. You know, boxers, they jump really quick. Well, they're creating stiffness, which can translate to sprinting or quick jumping and and dorsiflex position and using your fascial uh, tissues as well through stiffness. So yeah, absolutely. I love it because, you know, tying those things together and it's a different thought process, but building that elasticity is very much like how Verkashansky would say extensive method. And you're mm-hmm. looking at it similarly, but just from a different lens. Yes, absolutely. Without a doubt. No, that's great. So then once you get past these things, where are some situations now where Lee, through his career, um, has now been like, I was doing this right when I got out of SUNY Cortland. So mm-hmm. obviously this is completely what I'm still doing because the education from SUNY Cortland is so far above <laughs> what everyone else is getting. But where are some things that you're now looking back and being like, mm, might might have wanted to change that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. You know where... Uh, I, I think, and this is starting to understand how mechanics, biomechanics and physics tie in together. So early on, because I was a, I was a four sport athlete, but I was a, I ran track as well. And so in track, I always remember our coaches used to say, when you start accelerating, you know, you take shorter, quicker steps and, you know, quick arms and you take a lot of steps to get going. Well, Again, if you watch film, that's really not what we do. We're trying to project our pelvis down the track or up the court or up the field or whatever. So the mistake I made early on was I emphasize always being 90 degrees at the arms, even in acceleration. I always talked about being quicker out of the start. And what I started to realize is and it's funny because I didn't move that way, even though we were told that way. I was a, I was, you know, I'm not very tall. I'm five ten, but I was a very uh, um, explosive starter. Like I took long strides relative to my stride. I didn't overstride. But so the mistake I made then is I didn't teach enough about backside stroke of the arm and how that needs to open up to help the backside leg push longer because we have to change inertia, right? We're body's at rest. We got to move it. So in order to do that, I need to have longer ground contact time. Well, if my limbs are too quick, I actually like really never finish the, the push, you know, into the ground. So in the same thing, laterally, it translated laterally. Uh, I spent a lot of time, um, like I've worked with some professional organizations on in baseball on base stealing, getting a jump. And it's the same thing. It's that length of push getting into the proper lane. And Charlie Francis taught us years ago, you have to apply more force if you want to lean more, not the other way around. You got to, if you apply force with that afford you to lean, that was probably the mistake I made early on that I've had to, you know, obviously over the years, you know, at least 20 years ago, I figured it out. But those first several years, I probably screwed up some athletes on that part. <laughs> no, but I, I love that because it's, again, connecting a lot of dots and showing how many people who are, you know, near the top when it comes to like understanding how all of these things work, move the same way because, you know, you immediately said it's all about displacement of the pelvis. And that's Mm -hmm. the first thing Dr. Yes has told me was 
when he builds these exercises, that's all he cares about is the yeah. biomechanics involved, the technique involved, and your ability to displace the pelvis. So mm-hmm. that all of that is, is fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's cool when you, when, even when I, I talk to my athletes, obviously you don't say too much to the athletes about body parts and moving it, but I, I'll say to my athletes, okay, right here's your center of mass. You, that's the thing you got to get moving. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like if the sled was your center of mass, you got to push the sled. So your pelvis is the center. Of mass. So my angles of force application have to be positioned so I can move my pelvis in the direction I want to go. And then we start looking specifically at various sports and how that applies. Cause a track athlete can be extremely accurate with that because their job is to run fast. Now you take a volleyball back row player. Well, they have to move quickly, but it's usually a step or two and then defend the floor against the ball. you right. So it all translates to the task in front of them, but still, you got to move your center of mass, which moves your pelvis. A hundred percent. So now, when let's let's keep running down that rabbit hole. When you're talking about different sports and different things, you know, being someone that most people talk about when it comes to just that speed aspect of it, you know, we touched upon basketball, but where are some instances? or things that you kind of have your boxes that you check for, for all athletes. You know I mean? Obviously track would yeah. be different, but you get to work with such a wide array of sports. Like where do you see, like, what are Lee's like, you got to check that box before we move on. We got to check that box and, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. So we, um, you know, when I, when I speak a lot, I talk about having a model. So if you have a model of movement, okay. So if you're working with your men's basketball team or you're at a game or and you're watching them shoot, you can identify a bad looking shot because it's not fitting into the model of what an efficient shot looks like. Or, you know, you'll resonate with this. If you had somebody shooting on goal and they wanted to hit, hit the upper corner, but yet their, their foot plant, and their kick was just dysfunctional. Well, you would pick that out very quickly because it's missing the model of what a kick should look like. So when it comes to when it comes to acceleration and moving, I have a model, but I I um, allow variability for that particular sport. My left tackle in football does a defensive shuffle, but it looks a heck of a lot different than my basketball player guarding another point guard because the, my, my tackle, if he gets his feet really close together, he's probably on his backside really quick with a rush end, right? And he's also got to be able to use his hands. Now, a soccer player marking defensively, they're a very unique sport because most American sports, or really most sports anyway, move their feet to get their hands in position to make a play. Soccer moves their feet to get their feet in position to make a play. So sometimes that varies my force application, especially on the final couple steps when I start engaging. So when I look at athletes move, I'm like, okay, yep, they understand pushing. They understand if they have to pull, if they're they're doing a lateral shuffle. They're understanding arm separation, but I afford them the variability to be specific for their sport. Tennis is another example. Tennis players play very high initially because their vision, they have to see over the net cord. But then when the ball comes, 
and it, they, they know where the ball is, then they can drop and attack. And then after they hit it, they pop back up, they bounce on their feet, split step, boom, and they go, and they'll get low again and attack. Basketball players, if you pop up too soon, you're beat. you got to stay level to be able to match the speeds of the different defenders. So, But they all hit the landmarks, They all hit, the, but it just varies that, that little variability uh, to meet the demands of your sport. Yes, I love that. So then when you're breaking those down, but let's talk with how you, you know, because you did also touch upon limitations in communication and obviously now cueing and relationships and all that for, for some reason have become really sexy to talk about. Mm-hmm. How then are you able to definitively but simply communicate that versus those sports? You know, the example of basketball versus tennis um, is a great one because there's so many things that are similar with how they need to move, but yeah. that visual aspect changes so much with those limitations. So how do you how do you alter those things with the sport and or the athlete? Right. Yeah. Well, most of the time, athletes self-select their movement based on repetition, right? Because if I played a lot of tennis. I, I just naturally take on that movement, right? I, you can almost tell if you brought in five different athletes from five different sports and you asked them all to shuffle, you could pick the basketball player out like that. You know, you can just see it. It's They take on that DNA. Um, so I what I'll do is I'll ask the athletes to move in a particular way, like maybe shuffle across the lane or something like that. And what, all I try to emphasize to simplify it for them is I cue them to push the ground away. If you're my basketball player, because the change of direction is so vital and so quick, we have to emphasize staying level all the time. My tennis athlete, I'll allow like a jump stop or in tennis we call a split step, and then they will now settle down and then push off. So the cueing will be very similar to any athlete because I try to give them athleticism so that they can self-select their sport-specific movement that they'll need when they actually start moving laterally. So, again, my, my, my defensive tackle sits up a little bit higher, right? They can't get too low. They have to be a little bit higher. My tennis player can be a little bit higher initially. Gets low. My basketball player has to stay fairly low, uh, relatively speaking, so I can I can cue them to push the ground away, uh, you know, to stay in the tunnels. Another phrase we use, and their tunnels vary, right, based on the sport. So I can I can manipulate their movement with a, a, a cue, but what I want to do is make sure that they understand force application. And so as everybody does the same. I the one of the girls I had this morning, she's a martial artist, and her movement is a lot like a fencer. You know, it, it's push, 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 but it looks different because of the, you know, the setup of that, that sport. So, yeah. So that's kind of what we try to do with it in terms of cueing. No, I love it. And then you brought up a couple sports and a couple different activities that involve implements. How does that change how you go about teaching things? Yeah. Uh, uh, like uh, in, in a, so if we take a track athlete, that's our model, right? That's the ideal accelerator. If we were to say that's the ideal accelerator. Okay, now we go to a tennis player. A tennis player is going to have a hard time having such a long backstroke, especially with the hand that's holding the racket, because 
that weight is going to delay the next push because that weight of that racket having to swing back through it increases my lever. So they're going to have to learn to run with a little bit shorter arm stroke, a little bit more elbow bend, closer to that 90 degree to move. My lacrosse athlete, especially when they're running with two hands and they're cradling versus running with one, it's the same kind of thing. Their, their leg gait, their, their gait cycle should be very similar to the model, right? But there's going to be some differences because we might have some up top pivoting going on of the upper body simply because we have an implement. Uh, I guess a really good example would look at a quarterback rolling out to their non-dominant side. So a right-handed quarterback running a bootleg to the left side, both hands on the ball, looking upfield and running with that rotation back and forth, right? They kind of pivot. Well, that's an example of the gait has to be the same, but the upper body has to overcome that, um, I guess we could call it that pretension that the arm action that a track athlete gets. Now this athlete has to find it with a little bit more maybe T-spine rotation to help the loading through the opposite hip. If that makes sense. Yeah, that's kind of what we're looking at. No, 100%. And that's how you would cue that then moving forward. Yes. Yeah, without a doubt. We just, yep, we still push. Make sure you're pushing. Make sure you're pushing. And then if we're, if I happen to work with an athlete with an implement, we say, okay, still push. And here's what we need to do with your body to get that, that still, that effort, that rate of force into the ground. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think that that, in all seriousness, is one of the most missed, just missed and overlooked things where it's like talk about a field hockey player or a lacrosse yeah. player or, you know, even a soccer player when, you know, obviously running the ball down is important or a basketball player running the ball down is important, but running with an implement is, it could be a 180 degree change. That's right. Yes. Without a doubt. Yep. So that, no, that all of that to me is, is killer because, no one ever got on the highlights just because they made an 80-yard run. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Unless it's a touchdown in football. But even then, yeah. you're changing yeah. the arm action with the implement. Yes, you're right. It's uh, very, very true. It's funny. The other day, um, I was working with a group of coaches, and we were talking about accelerating. And we were talking about the various sports. And I said, how many of you teach acceleration into a 180 backpedal uh, so that, and, and a lot of them said, well, yeah, we do that because it's a warm up. I said, but no, but think about this. How many times is a basketball player on the offensive end that all of a sudden they either scored or they you know, turned it over and they have to sprint back They're the, they're the deepest person. And they sprint and at about half court, all of a sudden they turn backwards and they start backpedaling to get a view of the entire, but they keep moving backwards. How many of you actually teach that, um, um, uh, resourcefulness for the athlete to be able to manage their acceleration into a backpedal. And so we showed them how we do that, how we manage it or, or different patterns like that. So we, we, sometimes we have, we, we get caught in our profession on compartmentalizing so much that we forget athletes do like eight different movements in one play. I mean, they go from a lateral to a cut, to a backpedal, to a stop, to a forward, to a, you know, in soccer, you might, do all those and all of a sudden you jump quick to head it while you're getting bumped by somebody else. I'm like, that's that's why we got to sometimes be non-compartmentalized in our training. No, 100%. And I think that just piggybacking off that, that's why the general is so important. And just 
playing different games like that, if you may, like doing yeah. different locomotive skills are so important. Yeah. Well, do you remember the the 30 for 30 Randy Moss did? And he talked about the game they used to do. And he, I don't recall if he had a name for the game, but he said they used to just play football. And the only rule was you got to get to the other side without getting tagged or caught. And they ran and they cut. And he said, that's how we learned how to move, you know, because it was just instinctive, you know, and that's we got to, you know, we got to keep that. It's, the specific training is vital because that's what makes. Do that in lieu of the great foundation of freedom of movement and freedom of play. That's what allow. that's our foundation. Really. That should be on the bottom. That's why my 10 year old goes out and plays with his friends all the time. They get, they're developing so that when they're ready to be trained, then they can be. Yeah. And we could get into a whole nother smorgasbord <laughs> of topics on that one. Sure. Good. I mean, that's two PE majors talking about that might, I mean, that, that might break the internet. Um, but listen, Lee, this is absolutely chock full of just awesome stuff. I cannot thank you enough for spending the time with us today. This is, this is fantastic, man. I, I, I'm truly appreciative of your time and grateful for you being on. Thank you so much. Well, thanks Jay. It was an honor. I appreciate it. And best of luck with you guys. You're doing great work there and uh, keep it going. Appreciate that, man. And thank you for everything that you've done to, to, to drive us forward and make us better and, and really do the legwork for all of us to figure this out because without you, there'd be a lot of questions that they wouldn't even be questioned yet. So I, I can't thank you enough for everything you've done. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah, man. Well, hey, go Red Dragons, and we will be in touch real soon. Yes, yes. Have a good one. You too, man. <laughs> bye Cheers. Bye. Yeah, take care. And a huge thanks to Lee Taft for spending the time with us today. Guys, I mean, what else can you ask for? Open, honest, candid sharing from literally the guy who wrote the book on most of these things. You know, for him being so open and candid to, to share with us how he came up with these ideas, to what he's uh, changed and based off the uh, mistakes that he's made in the past, and even going into the, the specifics that he's looking for and breaking down drills and things of that nature. I cannot thank Lee enough for being so open and honest and candid with his sharing today. This was absolutely sensational. And guys, if there is anyone that you feel like could take anything from this talk, please share it through the social media outlet of your choice. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it may be. Email them the link. We're just trying to get the best information out there possible to all the great coaches that we can. And for all those shares, we are greatly appreciative. And as always, guys, thank you for everything that you do for us here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. We will be back next week with another awesome guest. We will see you then.